This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Yes, this is episode one of Ask the ANPs, where we try to address all maintenance questions that come our way. All three of us are ANPIAs, and we love to answer your questions. And if you have one, please reach us at podcasts at AOPA.org. That's an email address, podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So our first question is from Andy. He's got a sky lane that's going through cylinders, and uh, he's wondering what's going on. Andy, what you got? I have this uh, wonderful old sky lane I've, I've had for uh, over 18 years now with a, a partner. And uh, it's got one of those uh, rock-solid Continental 470s, which uh, has done a great job for us. Uh, and it's well past TBO, uh, about 1,700 uh, hour, a little more than that now, almost 1,750. But it's been running great. And, however, the last uh, three annuals had to put cylinders on it. And in fact, five of the six over those three years have, have been redone. And one of them, in fact, was redone twice. You know, so we're keep, keeping putting money in roughly a thousand bucks or whatever for these cylinders. Is there a, a point where it would make more sense to quit buying new cylinders and just overhaul the whole engine? Well, the short answer is an overhauled engine with new cylinders is no different on cylinder wear than a old engine with new cylinders. So just kind of start there. Why did they pull the cylinders? That's what I wanted to know. You said that you said they had to replace the cylinders and we're always very suspicious about that because yes. so many cylinders get replaced that don't need to be. So could you elaborate on what the criteria were that led up to uh, to all of the cylinder replacement? The vast majority of, I believe, almost all the cases, except for one, it was uh, low compressions. Yeah, but what? But, uh, and the one, okay. uh, one other case was uh, burnt exhaust valves. Are you saying that most of them were not burned exhaust valves? Yes. Because obviously, if you have a burned exhaust valve, you will have low compression. But you're saying that 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 they were replaced because of leakage past the rings in most cases. Again, I'm, I, w I wasn't there, but the likelihood is that those cylinders did not need to re be replaced. First of all, nobody ever fell out of the sky be because a leak had passed the rings. Uh, on Continental engines, Continental's guidance is that the compression can get down to typically somewhere in the, in the mid-40s before it passes the threshold. Continental doesn't actually say a particular number. They 
have something called a master orifice tool that you use to calibrate your gauge with, and that becomes the go, no-go threshold. But for most gauges, it's somewhere in the mid-40s. And even if a cylinder measures below that, if you look inside with a borescope and you don't see anything obviously wrong, then Continental's guidance is to go fly the airplane for an hour and then repeat the, the compression test on that cylinder hot. And I've seen cases, for example, we had a, a Cirrus client in Florida who the shop wanted to pull a cylinder because it was measuring 38 over 80, which is well below the master orifice threshold. And we said, well, let's not pull the cylinder until we take a look inside with a borescope and see what's going on. So they did a borescope inspection. We all looked at the pictures. They, they all looked unremarkable. So we said, well, let's fly the airplane for an hour and repeat the test. And the IA was a little resistant to that because he said, well, how can I approve you flying the airplane with a cylinder that's 38 over 80? And I said, well, read the Continental Service Bulletin. That's what they say to do. That's the authority. So kind of reluctantly, he signed off the annual and we flew the airplane for an hour and brought it back to him and had him all ready with his compression tester and his air hose and everything so that he could slap it on there immediately when the airplane taxied in. And he measured the cylinder. It was 72 over 80 on the retest. So, you know, a couple of, you see those things happen a couple of times and you totally lose faith in the value of, of compression numbers. The, the, well, and really, the rings rotate, right? So the rings could be in a rotation where the compression is low. There are all sorts of things that, that can affect compression. What I like to say is the uh, compression test is one with an extremely low signal-to-noise ratio. There's a lot of noise on those readings, and they can vary all over the place for reasons having absolutely nothing to do with cylinder condition. So the borescope is really the gold standard nowadays for determining cylinder condition. And if you have low compression but things look okay under the borescope, the compression test is the guy that's lying. It's It just always is the case. You can also cross-correlate a bad compression with uh, if it's uh, burning oil. You can see oil in the exhaust or the belly. Belly's a little harder to detect, but that that was one way that I knew that my cylinders were low. Their compressions weren't that bad, but I definitely saw a big drop down in oil consumption and it wasn't leaking anywhere. It wasn't on the engine. It was definitely being burned. You mean like an, in, an increase in oil consumption? I'm sorry, yeah. increase, yes. And and really the key is if, if you have a problem with rings that is really serious, one of the, the ways you're going to see that is that your oil is going to turn black very, very quickly after an oil change because a lot of blow-by is going to be getting past those rings. And you, you might, heck, you might have a broken ring or something like that. It's not that there aren't, that ring problems don't happen. It's just that, we don't ever want to pull a cylinder based on a compression reading alone because the compression test is such an unreliable test. So we want to look at these other factors, and particularly the borescope, because the compression test is a very indirect way of measuring cylinder condition and a very inaccurate way, or non-reproducible way. You measure you measure the same cylinder three times, you get three different numbers. You measure it with different mechanics doing it, and you get different numbers. The borescope is basically like climbing inside the cylinder and looking around. It's a, it's a much better way of judging things. So we put a lot of emphasis on borescope inspection and de-emphasis on, on compression numbers. Yeah. You can see broken rings. You can see piston pin plugs that are rubbing the cylinder walls, all kinds of good things. I wish Lycoming would come out with some really nice guidance like Continental has. It's real difficult with the Lycoming because if you follow their guidance, um, I won't quote numbers, but... 
all the compressions have to be above a certain level and you can't have a more than so many pounds difference between the average and the lowest. And it can get to be really a problem when there's not really a problem there, but you're pulling cylinders off that don't need to be pulled off. You know, another evidence that compressions don't mean anything is I've tracked my compressions over 30 years of ownership, not the same engine, but I've just graphed it with time and they're all over the place. There's no correlation with age. You would think that if something's wearing, the compressions would tick down, but they don't. Every year I do it cold. Sometimes I do a compression check, hot or cold. I get the cylinders in a different position and the numbers are all over the place. So Andy, did, did the shop tell you exactly what was going on? Did they tell you that they followed Continental's guidance or was it mostly based on the compression results? Did they do a borescope? What was the extent of their explanation to you? Different mechanics over the three uh, different years, but the most recent one was uh, starting just with, uh, you know, the dreaded phone call from the mechanic saying that (laughs) two of the cylinders failed. Uh, (laughs) Is that all he said was they failed? Um, And um, I, I, I didn't follow you know, the, your very good advice that I should have had before uh, to maybe ask some more questions to, to see what happened. Yeah. Uh, once uh, once the decision was made to pull them, you know, at that point, then, you know, they did do the borescope and you know, didn't find really anything remarkable this year at all, and including the inspection of the lower. Because that was part of our thinking was, as long as we got it open, let's make sure that the lower half is, is uh, still well, fine in, sure. in trying to make this decision about whether to invest more money in the engine. Right, for sure. And any time you have a cylinder off, it's 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 an opportunity to stick your head in there and take a look. And it would be malpractice not to take as good a look as you can. But we don't like to see cylinders come off, and we we strongly advise aircraft owners if the shop says that some cylinders need to come off, you, you go in and grill them and ask them exactly why and have they followed all the procedures? Have they done a borescope? Uh, what did they find with the borescope before you authorize uh, cylinder removal? A very large percentage of cylinders that come off didn't need to come off. Well, and the issue is that it's not just um, the expense to the owner, but putting a new cylinder on in the field is uh, rife with uh, issues. It's risky. If it's not yeah. done properly. Yes, yeah. lots of risk. Well, Andy, that was a great question. I think a lot of people will get some good information out of it. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate all the advice, folks. So the next question comes from a person with a Cessna 182 tied down in Houston. He says he flies it about 80 hours a year, mostly summer and fall, and he's asking what engine oil he should be using. He presently uses AeroShell 15W50, and he's also asking how often he should change the oil and how often he should change the filter. I'm going to get hate mail for this, but AeroShell 15W50 is the one and only aircraft oil that I actively disrecommend. I would discourage people from using 15W50 because it's a semi-synthetic oil, which means that it has significantly lower ability to handle lead sludge. It would be a fantastic oil if we were operating on unleaded fuel. And in fact, if this 182, it doesn't say what year, but if it has a low compression engine like the 0470R, and it's eligible for an auto fuel STC, and they want to run it on unleaded auto fuel, then 15W50 would be a great oil. But as long as you're running on leaded avgas, I would discourage 
people from using uh, semi-synthetic oils or fully synthetic oils. We don't have any fully synthetic oils anymore. Mobile uh, had one called Mobile Ave One, and it was uh, it was taken off the market in a hail of lawsuits because it wrecked so many engines. Aeroshell has 15W50, which is 50% synthetic and 50% mineral oil based, uh, which isn't nearly as bad as Mobile Ave One in the, in. Re- Guard to uh, the ability to control lead sludge, but it's certainly something I would not recommend as long as we're continuing to run on leaded avgas. I'll be very happy when the day comes that we get the lead out of avgas, and then we will not have to worry about such things, and we probably will all change over to running synthetic oil. If the airplane's based in Houston, and unless it does a lot of flying up to the coal country, there's really no reason for that engine to be using multi-weight oil at all. So if it were me, I would use a, a single-weight oil uh, like Aeroshell W100. In fact, that's what I use in my California-based airplane. If you have a reason that you need to use multi-weight oil because you, you fly into areas where, where you're likely to have unpreheated cold starts, then I would recommend the Philips multi-weight product, Philips XC 20W50 or the Philips Victory oil 20W50. But I would avoid the Aeroshell 15W50 unless you're running unleaded fuel. And then Houston is an area of very high corrosion risk. And so that's that's a, a, a real issue, especially in airplanes that, like this one, seem to fly seasonally and have periods of long periods of downtime when they're vulnerable to corrosion. So you need to do something to minimize corrosion risk. One thing that I would recommend is the use of an additive called ASL CamGuard which is the most effective anti-corrosion additive that I know of. I use it in my own airplane. It also has very good anti-wear and anti-scuff properties, but it's real claim to fame is it's a great uh, corrosion inhibitor. Um, You use 5% mixture, so you just basically put a pint in every time you change the oil. If you don't want to use CamGuard, and it is a little bit pricey, you can also use Aeroshell W100+, and the plus means that it's W100 with the same additive package that is in 15W50, which includes uh, corrosion inhibitors. I, I don't think they're quite as good as CamGuard, but they're a lot better than, than nothing. And finally, and this isn't exactly oil issue, but because the corrosion risk in Houston is so high, if the airplane is, is inactive for a significant period of time and isn't flying every week or two to replenish the protective oil film, I would consider buying a, an engine dehydrator. There are several of them on the market. They basically plug into uh, to AC and they pump dehumidified air into the engine to keep the moisture out of it. It's probably a little hard to do that if the airplane is tied down because there isn't, probably isn't any place to plug it in. If it isn't a hangar though, it's a really, really effective way to suppress corrosion. And finally, the question is how often should the oil be changed and how often should the filter be changed We recommend changing the oil no more than every 50 hours or four calendar months, whichever comes first. If you uh, fly a lot, the hours will come first. If you don't fly a lot, the the months will come first. And we would recommend changing the filter every time you change the oil. Now, you probably wouldn't have to change the filter every time you change the oil in terms of oil cleanliness, but changing the filter is the best tool we have for checking to see if the engine is making metal. So we like to we, we like to 
to change the filter and cut the old one open as often as possible so that we're able to surveil the, the engine, make sure that, it, that nothing's coming apart inside. It's a good way to get rid of the rust, too. If it's been sitting there and it's yeah. got corrosion, it's a good yeah. way to remove the rust from the engine. Yep. I think if you have one of the, uh, the 550s with the smaller sumps, like a, a Cirrus or a Columbia, I would tend to lean toward a shorter time. 30 or 40 hours, something like that, because the oil circulates so many more times than the, you know, the big 12-quart sump yes. engines. Yeah, this is, a, this is a 182, which, which I think is a 10-quart sump, but it's a fairly generous sump for the engine. But yeah, the, the IO550 ends and uh, the, you're talking about in the Cirruses and the Columbias have a very large displacement, a very small oil sump. And so you're asking a small amount of oil to absorb an awful lot of contaminant. In fact, those are the airplanes that we have the worst luck with running Airshell 15W50. They tend to get lead-contaminated uh, rings and require cylinder changes more often than if they were using a, a, an all-petroleum-based um, oil that has a better ability to, to hold lead salts in, in suspension and not let them uh, precipitate out as, as sludge. But yeah, I don't. I, I don't think Continental was doing us a, a great service by building those engines with big displacements and small oil capacities. They did it to fit into the airframe. I think. I think it start didn't start out with the Cirrus, where they basically had an SR20 airframe that was built for a 360 engine, and they said we want to squeeze a 550 in. How are we going to do it? And and one one part of the answer is we're going to cut down the size of the oil sump so it'll fit. Maybe as a way to save weight, you know, two quarts of oil. But at any rate, it, it, I think Paul is right that, that if you have a, a big engine with a small oil capacity, that's a really good argument for changing the oil more often than 50 hours. So our next question comes from Steve, who has a Cessna Aerobat, which is kind of an unusual aircraft. Steve, what's your question? Okay. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for taking my question. My club has a 1981 A152 Cessna Aerobat. She's a nice bat and uh, generally sails through the annual with just the usual things to replace and fix. We also do 100-hour inspections. Now, we haven't done any aerobatics for a while, and uh, we've been saving up for parachutes. So I'm reluctant to just go off looping and pulling Gs without some sort of thorough check. So what can I do beyond the usual inspection tasks to get some confidence in the structural integrity of the bat? That sounds like a Paul question to me. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think. How many bats have I worked on? That not been a whole lot. It doesn't say discover flying on the side, does it? No, that was that was really a long time ago. I would definitely um, start with the lift strut attach points down underneath the floor. There's some primary structure in there. If you're going to put in any Gs, if you're just doing one G maneuvers, it's not too worrisome. But the lift strut attach areas, the bulkheads underneath the floor, uh, and back on the tail, there's not very hefty structure back there. The horizontal especially, people are very tempted to push down on the horizontal to move the airplane around. And you have a lot of problems with cracks and things uh, going on in that spar because it's mostly just the skin is wrapped around to kind of create a fake spar there. So you want to watch for that. Be sure it's nice and secure. And it, you can tell if things have been going on back there, if you see Cherry Max rivets installed or maybe paint cracked around some Cherry Max rivets, that's kind of a, a giveaway. And then you instruct everybody to never push down on the tail 
on the horizontal. They can push down on the tail cone, but not on the horizontal. That's definitely foreboding. Don't be doing that. But those would be the two main places I think that I would look as far as structure goes. I would uh, like to add, whenever I'm getting ready to do aerobatics, I do a real thorough checkout of the cockpit to make sure there's no loose items. I fly in an experimental biplane and everything seems to work its way to the tail, (laughs) whether it's um, someone's camera or my iPad or screws. Whenever I open up the tail, I find an interesting collection of things. And and also for that matter, I always check the seatbelt attach points if I'm going to be pulling negative G. I think vacuuming the carpet would be a prime concern. <laughs> the, the first time I did a roll in a Satabra, everything that was in the floorboard came up to places where it shouldn't be. So yeah, let's vacuum the carpet's not a bad idea. Hey, Paul, speaking about the tail, uh, hasn't the, that rear bulkhead in the tail cone been a, a problem with cracking and so on? It is it's mostly on the like the 182s and the 210s, but it's basically the same design on the 152s and 150s. So... Yeah, definitely look at all those rear attach points back there. And now that we have cheap borescopes, when you're through checking the fillings out in your teeth with your new borescope, run it up inside the the horizontal and look inside. Make sure there's no cracks and things. That's not something you want to do every time, but maybe at the annual or it's easy to do at 100 hour. Certainly just have a look. And you don't have to ask the mechanic to do it. You can go do this yourself or anybody that's part of your club can go take care of that. There's some good tips. Thanks very much. So we have a question here from an owner with a turbo bonanza. He had an issue in flight where an engine oil hose ruptured and all the oil went overboard. He got the airplane down safely and undamaged, but the engine seized in the process from oil starvation. And he had to make an insurance claim to get a new engine. And the adjuster said that since the engine failed in flight, it wasn't covered. So he's wondering, what can he do? I wonder... If the in-flight, in, the in-flight part seems kind of strange to me, like failing in flight is different than failing on the ground. I know that's not part of the answer. It just strikes me as strange that he would... You have to be difficult. Uh, well, if, <laughs> if, if it failed on the ground, it, 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 he probably wouldn't have had the seized engine and everything, so... Well, that could be, sure. But at any rate, this is, this is an interesting question. Uh, the, typically, if you have an engine failure, the insurance will not cover it but it will cover any consequential damage to the aircraft that was caused by the engine failure. It'll, it'll cover the prop or the uh, airframe damage or anything else that resulted from making the forced landing, but it typically won't cover the engine because insurance will treat the engine failure as normal wear and tear, and, and insurance doesn't cover that. It covers things that are the result of an adverse incident. The thing that makes this case interesting is that, and and I I absolutely expect that the insurance adjuster would come back and say it's not covered, but I would recommend to this owner that he go push back on this and push back on the following basis. He should argue that the engine failure was not the cause of this accident. The hose rupture was the cause of the accident. The hose rupture was not part of the engine. It was an airframe part. And had the hose not ruptured, the engine wouldn't run out of oil and, and failed. So the he should argue that the hose is the thing that shouldn't co- be covered. 
but that the engine's failure was a consequence of the hose failure. And it happened quite a bit later after, the, after all the oil went overboard. And therefore, the engine failure should be covered because it was a consequential damage, not the initial damage. If, if it was a normal kind of engine failure where it you know, threw a rod or something, then it would typically not be covered. Although all of the consequential stuff that that was damaged during the, the ensuing forced landing would would be covered, and even if the if the airplane you know burned up after landing, that would be covered. But the engine failure being the initial cause would typically not be covered by insurance. But in this case, I think he should argue, maybe even with the assistance of a of an aviation attorney to to help him be taken seriously, that it was not the engine failure that was the the initial failure. It was the hose failure, and the engine failure happened afterwards as a result of the hose failure, and it should it should uh, therefore be covered. Now, it, it depends on exactly how his policy is worded, and I'd also point out that if, if this fellow happens to be an AOPA member who uh, uh, subscribed to AOPA Pilot Protection Services, he may be able to get an aviation attorney to, to do this at, at no cost, because that's one of the things that the, uh, the pool attorneys will do, and I recommend people use that uh, quite a bit in, in things like that. You mean people read policies, Mike? <laughs> well, after, after something like this, it would yeah. be a good idea. Yeah, go read, read it, it you know, now. <laughs> dust it off and read it. <laughs> Find it first. <laughs> Find it, yeah. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. I've been through this quite a few times with uh, owners because I end up getting the airplane in. You do a lot of insurance uh, work. Doing, yeah. yeah, I do a lot of insurance work. And it's very important to find out what the insurance company defines as part of the core engine and what they define as accessories or appliances. Just because it's bolted to the engine, it may not be part of the basic part of the engine. A turbocharger controller is bolted to the firewall, especially on a Cessna. The turbocharger system is Cessna equipment, it's airframe. So the oil hoses, like you were talking about, the exhaust system is not part of the core engine. You buy the TSI 0520 engine from Continental and it shows up without exhaust and without turbo. So that's a, that is the exact argument to make for sure. Well, yeah, and it, it, this happened to me with my Skybolt. I had an engine oh, um, yes. failure due to oil starvation and I was doing aerobatics and the inverted oil mechanism jammed and I lost oil pressure. And, you know, you don't get points for making a perfect landing and not, and bringing the airplane back undamaged because they did not cover the engine at all. If I had, you know, put it over its nose and dinged the prop, I would have gotten a new engine and new prop. It would have been great. But instead, I, I, I did the perfect landing. But yeah, I was shocked too that, that that's what I was told, that if the engine failed because of oil starvation, I had no recourse they covered flushing the propeller uh, hub and governor and uh, flushing the oil cooler because metal might have gone through those components, even though no oil was circulating at all, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. And and the engine did seize. So I wish I'd talked to Mike about this before that happened, but this was unfortunately 10 years ago. That would have been an interesting May Day call, wouldn't it? <laughs> it was an interesting yeah. May Day call. I'm upside down and there's no oil in my engine. When I when I had my engine failure over Las Vegas, whenever it was, two thousand and four, I guess it was, and uh, secured the secured the right engine and made a single engine landing at uh, North Las Vegas. 
I thought about it and I said, you know, this was, I, I could only have handled this emergency better in one way. And that one way would have been to remember to forget to put down the landing gear. <laughs> now, that's what I wrote an article about that. And that's that's the only thing I found you did wrong in that whole flight. <laughs> it would have saved you a lot of money, Mike. And yeah, a lot absolutely. of time. Could have got a perfectly reasonable single engine airplane. <laughs> Okay, well, the next uh, question we have is from Richard, who's got a Cessna 180, and he's having some issues with vibrations in his prop when he removes his door. Richard, what you got? Yeah, great. Thank you, guys, and I appreciate your time. So here's the deal. I had a, I have a really highly experienced GA friend who's got a lot of time in a lot of different airplanes, and he took the 180 up, and he was coming in for his first landing. He was going to visit a couple strips. And when the RPM dropped below about 2,200, he felt a pretty strong vibration up towards the propeller, such that he thought it was in that area. He continued on down, and he noticed the vibration went away below about 1,700 RPM. He decided he didn't want to land, so he went around, cruised, and started heading back home. And in cruise, no problem, no vibration, nothing. Comes back in for a second landing, same issue. Between 2200 and 1700, he gets a vibration that he feels is with the prop. Now, he was flying it with the right door off. So he landed. He told me about it. I consulted an A&P. We looked at it. I went out and ran it up, ran it all through that range. No vibration. Put the door back on, went and flew it. No problem. Well, so there's the answer. Is, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. put, keep the door on. That's perfectly reasonable. Just don't take the Sounds door off. Sounds good to me. Right. So that's easy enough. So, I, so I've been flying it, you know, no issue whatsoever on, on two or three times. But w- I went back and looked at it. There's nothing in any Cessna manual I can find that says don't fly it with the doors off. Don't fly it with one door off. There's no limitation that I can see. So my question is, what is it about the dynamics there that made it seem like there was a vibration coming out of the propeller? And if it wasn't for this guy's experience, I would have just dismissed it as the, a yoke actuator problem, right? But uh, this guy's pretty highly experienced yoke actuator. So, you know, I, I think it was something going on there. Well, Richard, let me start off by uh, pointing out that in, in the world of aviation, when somebody tells you a story that starts out, I have a friend, that's always very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What had happened I've, was. I've done that too, got, uh, you know, right, right up guilty. until the statute of limitations <laughs> runs. And then you say, oh, yeah. this happened to me. I, um, I know a guy. <laughs> but, but seriously, um, the laws of physics tell me that the vibration could not possibly be from the prop, even though it seemed that way. There's nothing about the door being open that could affect the prop. It can affect the airframe, but it really can't affect the prop. And my best guess is, and sort of stabbing in the dark because I wasn't there, that when when there's vibration like that in a Cessna, the very first thing I always think about is vibration in the windshield. Because single-engine Cessnas are unusual in this respect, that their windshields are not hard-mounted to the airframe. They're mounted in a, a channel with, with, with a bunch of, it's felt, right, Paul? That, yeah, it's felt. Uh, and the reason is that the Cessna airframe isn't very rigid in that area. It moves around a lot. And uh, if, if, the air, if the windshield were hard-mounted to the airframe, the windshield would, would start cracking. So the windshields are soft-mounted. 
And the windshields have resonant frequency where the, the, they'll vibrate. And it's not uncommon in Cessnas, even when the door is closed, for there to be certain RPM ranges where it starts to feel wrong and it's because the windshield is vibrating. With the door off, my guess is that that phenomenon is, is greatly uh, accentuated. And so that would be my guess. I don't think it's dangerous, but I mean, the obvious comment is don't run it at RPMs where it doesn't feel right. And I have to know, why is he flying around with the door off? Well, it's an odd mission. It was a photo mission. And so, and the doors, this particular 180 has quick. Right. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm pretty sure those airplanes are approved for, you know, explicitly for operation with the doors off. And we've done photo missions. Uh, Sometimes, you know, people use them for jump planes and with the doors off. And But it certainly makes sense that with the door off, it would change the, the ability of the cabin pressure to, it changes more freely now. Well, it almost sounds like you ever drive a car with the window, one window open and you get that thrumming sound. Yeah. We were talking about that this afternoon in, in yeah. the truck. You know, if you're going to put a window down, you put the back put one down two. and it yeah. beats your ears to nothing. Yeah. yeah. You know, what would be kind of interesting would be to, in, in that airplane to, with the door off and, 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 and something that I'm suspecting is a windshield vibrating to move the rudder trim a little bit and see what happens when it when it's flying slightly sideways in one direction or the other and see if it accentuates or deaccentuates the vibration or that, open a vent maybe something that would change the pressure in the cabin mm-hmm. or fly with the door on and just open the window and take pictures out well no that that's cheating well oh. and and I also thought it'd be fun to go up and take both doors off and see if there was a difference or just take the left door off and yeah. see if there's so sure um, yeah but Mike, it's it's helpful to know that you're saying there's nothing dangerous about it. It's just again, I wasn't there. I'm I'm just going by by a third hand report because this wasn't something you experienced, right? It was a friend, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if it's what I what I'm you know getting the feeling that it is, I don't think there's I don't think there's anything dangerous about it. But vibrations always going to cause fatigue eventually, right? You don't want to. Well, if- yeah, if you did it for, you know, 100,000 hours, you probably <laughs> might have a problem, but this is just a photo mission. Um, and the prop was just rebalanced last year, so it, it's only- it, It's just hard to imagine that it could be the prop, really. If it was the prop, it would happen regardless of the door o- off or on. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, good. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot, Richard. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you want to hear. Send your questions and comments to podcast at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye.